a gentleman that worked in the juvenile apartment that was a supervisor in the facility at the time, told my entire staff that he thought I was the craziest SOB he'd ever met because I walked into juvie and gave kids knives. (laughs) 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 And he said, but it taught him a very valuable lesson, which is the kids responded to my belief in them and, and expectation that they could succeed. And they responded to that. Welcome to an army of normal folks. I'm Bill Courtney. I'm a normal guy. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm an entrepreneur. And I've been a football coach in inner city Memphis. And the last part, it accidentally led to an Oscar for the film about our team. It's called Undefeated. I believe our country's problems will never be solved by a bunch of fancy people in nice suits talking big words that nobody understands on CNN and Fox, but rather an army of normal folks, us, just you and me deciding, hey, I can help. That's what Chad Hauser, the voice we just heard, has done. Chad was a restaurant owner and chef whose life was forever changed when he was asked to teach eight young men in juvenile detention how to make ice cream. And he couldn't look away after that. In 2015, Chad founded Cafe Momentum, now an award-winning Dallas restaurant that, get this, is run 100% by youth leaving the juvenile justice system. And they're interns who not only get paid and trained in the restaurant business, but they also benefit from 12 months of support that includes case management, financial education, parenting classes, career exploration, and they can even go to their very own school there. They've walked alongside a thousand youth in Dallas and are now expanding this incredible model across the country. I really cannot wait for you to meet Chad right after these brief messages from our generous sponsors. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Chad 
Hauser. It is so good to meet you. I've, 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 I, I was actually aware, a little bit aware of you and what you were doing, and I'll reveal to you a little later how. But uh, it, 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 man, it's so good to be in Dallas and be with you. Thanks for taking an hour or so to hang out with me. Thanks for being in Dallas, and thanks for hanging out with me. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a month too early. A month later, I think it, I wouldn't feel any heat, but at least <laughs> I missed July. What was it, like 111 down here or something? Uh, I have PTSD still. I don't know if I can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Alex, the producer, is going to be mad at me because I time-stamped it. So now everybody knows it's after July that I was here. But anyway... Um, Really, really good to be with you. And before we jump into Cafe Momentum and the phenomenal success that you've had, I, I just really want to set up who you are. So where were you born? Where'd you come from? Tell me about Chad, the the kid running around in the neighborhood, Chad. Tell me who that kid is, that guy. <laughs> well, it, it's uh, ironic. Uh, I was born... Uh, here in Dallas, and the hospital I was born in is less than a mile from Cafe Momentum. So no kidding. <laughs> keep it close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got you got a tight world. So where where is that? Uh, Baylor Hospital, just outside downtown Dallas. Was born here. It's something that I I think um, may sound a little bit ancillary, but but I, I think in in the grand scheme of the the story, made a significant impact as. Um, my mom graduated high school in 1973, which was two years before I was born. The significance of that for my life is that the high school that she graduated from was the first high school in Dallas to be desegregated when she was a freshman. Wow. Which meant that... Hold on. And she stayed. Yes. Because yes. in the South, for those of you not from the South, a lot of times when the high schools got desegregated in the early 70s, kids left some yes. kids left because their parents yanked them out other kids left because part of that was kids would get bust out of their neighborhood to other schools, other schools right. to segregate so she no they get stayed and you know at, um at the end of the day whether my grandparents wanted to leave or not um they were too poor that wasn't an option for them you know but but for me it meant they stayed for me, it meant that I grew up kind of in two worlds. And by that, I mean, I actually grew up in a suburb of Dallas. And the suburb that I grew up in was a suburb that had a population growth around the time that desegregation happened. And, hmm. and white families started leaving the city and going out the suburbs. So the suburb that I grew up in was very white, uh, very middle class. But my my mom and my grandma being best friends meant that I spent every weekend at my grandparents' house. Hmm. It meant that I spent every summer running around him. And, you know, my grandfather had the greenest thumb of any human being in the world. So if he wasn't working on a car or something in the garage, he was out in the backyard gardening. My mom and my grandmother loved to sew, which was not anything that I cared to do. <laughs> um, so that meant that I was running around the neighborhood. And in that particular neighborhood did not look like the neighborhood where I grew up, right? It was very racially diverse. It was socioeconomically diverse. In fact, I, I remember times when my grandfather would hook the garden hose up to the kitchen sink so that he could run warm water 
into the neighbor's backyard and fill up a kiddie pool because they couldn't pay their water bill that particular month. And that's You're kidding. No, I mean, that, that, that was things that happened. But then I would go home to, to the suburb and that was not the world. A no, nobody. World. Yeah. Nobody was in free on free and reduced lunch <laughs> at school. Nobody was. Um, what did your grandfather do for a living? My grandfather drove a bread truck for Mrs. Baird's bakery. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. And, and I, uh, uh, we have a running joke in our family because the Mrs. Baird's bakery was right off the highway and the highway that we would take from home to go to my grandparents' house. And we would drive by that bakery and I would say, you know, what would happen if that bakery blew up one day and everybody in the car would roll their eyes and I'd say, I sure don't know, but it would be one crummy day. Yeah. <laughs> Shove a bit yeah. of bean. That was dad jokes before there were dad jokes. You know? Yeah, that's I was right. ahead of my time. <laughs> so um, your parents, what did your parents do for a living? My mom was a secretary um, for all of my growing up. That was really fun, too, though, because she was a secretary on a horse ranch, which also meant that uh, amongst going into the city and experiencing that, living in a suburb, I would spend days during the summer on a ranch cleaning horse poop and washing horses. And uh, A secretary for a horse? I wouldn't, wouldn't think a horse ranch would well, need. Well, they, they, uh, they, they raised uh, Morgan horses, and so they would show them. They would travel all over the country to these horse shows and all this stuff. And so my mom was out there. My dad was an office supply salesman and built a whole career doing that. But he, uh, in 1980, also signed up to be a reserve police officer for the Collin County Sheriff's Department. So it was this crazy world where... You know, my dad wore a business suit during the week, traveled and all that stuff. But on the weekends, he had on a police uniform and was driving a patrol car. And I was it was always the most confusing thing to me. It was like, so you signed up to be a police officer. You put on the uniform, you drive the car around, you pull people over, you do all stuff and you don't get paid. And he was like, nope, I just, you know, do it. It also meant that in high school, I was. The, I never went to parties in high school because my dad, dad was one of the cops bre- breaking it up. And I was like, how embarrassing. <laughs> that, okay, siblings? Uh, I, uh, the, the, there's, we have a, a complicated family tree. So my dad is not my biological father, but he's raised me since I was two. And my mom passed away almost four years ago. And so I have a um, almost four-year-old son at home and also a, a 79 year old teenager. That's my dad uh, that, lives, <laughs> that lives with us. And so, uh, and it, it's, it's, it's awful watching them because they just egg each other on to get the, in the worst trouble possible. Um, but um, who so, cares yeah, about the 75 right, year, right. year difference? <laughs> still kids playing. Uh, oh no. They still laugh at fart jokes. They still, like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I read, um, and and I don't want to jump too far ahead. Sure. We'll get to how you got where you are. But I read that um, you once said that Sundays were about this whole eclectic group of people called your family would get together. And it was around food. It was around yeah. eating. It was around the community your family shared on Sundays around eating. It's where my love for food came from. Every Sunday, my mom and dad and I would go to my grandparents' house, and all my aunts and uncles and cousins would come over, and we'd have Sunday supper. And being that, for all intents and purposes, an only child, I have step-siblings and half-siblings and so forth, but um, grew up, by and large, in, in a house alone whatever. My cousins were, were like surrogate siblings, you know, and my aunts and uncles were like 
my additional parents and we were all very, very tight knit. And so we would get together on Sundays and, and break bread together. And it was, um, it, it, it taught me of the, the power of breaking bread, the power of food, that it was not just about eating. Uh, it was about that camaraderie the community, uh, community feeding your soul. And subsequently my, my grandfather would, uh, he played the guitar, harmonica and piano all by, excuse me, all by ear. Wow. Not something that I inherited from him, unfortunately, but I do have his 1959 Gibson Les Paul Jr. guitar hanging up in my living room. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and and what's really cool about it is my, my mom, being the meticulous person that she was, had saved the receipt, too. So I have the receipt from where he put that guitar on layaway in 1960. Things probably worth a lot of money. Uh, well, you know, it's funny because people always say that. I'm like, it doesn't matter to me. Like yeah, that doesn't, it's worth a lot more it, than money to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it, it, it's those Sundays. My grandpa would break out the guitar and play, you know, and, and he was just a good, good at the old chicken picking the, 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 the Chet Adkins, you know? Um, and so that was family that was, you know, food, family, all of it was tied in together and it's never left me. So you go to high school in Dallas, yep. right? And after a high school in Dallas without any uh, really fun parties on the weekends because your dad <laughs> embarrassed you for busting all your buddies, you, what's the plan? What, what's what's next for Chad? Yeah. So, you know, um, being in, in the, the home that I grew up in, you know, for me, the expectations were always high. I was expected to be a good student. I was expected to get good grades. I was expected to go to college. I was expected to graduate college. I was expected to go into the workforce and build a career. I was, you know, all of these, like they were, these these weren't, this wasn't optional. So you can imagine, uh, I spent two years in college getting good. I I graduated honors from high school, spent two years in college, getting good grades. And then, you know, they, they have this little thing where they, at a certain point, you got to declare a major. Um, and, and I had actually grown up being sports obsessed. I, uh, when I was in the eighth grade, wrote a letter to a, a legendary Dallas, uh, sportscaster and asked him if I could follow him around for a day. No kidding. Uh, yeah, it was, it Who, was, what's his name? Dale Hansen. Okay. Um, and, and they call Cowboys games. Oh, he, he was the, uh, color commentator for the Dallas Cowboys for years. He was, uh, uh, the sports anchor for the local ABC affiliate here in Dallas. Um, and just, just true legend, just, just retired a couple of years ago. And I'll, I'll tell you anecdotally, you know, two things happened. I, I show up at the studio to follow him around. I'm sitting in the lobby with my mom. They told us to be there at four o'clock, which at 13 years old, when you're like, you don't go to work till four o'clock was like, <laughs> I want that gig. <laughs> yes. So Dale has a, a sharp wit and a sharp tongue and he was late. Um, because he was late, we sat out in the lobby waiting. And because we were sitting out in the lobby, the doors opened and out walked Walter Cronkite. Wow. Um, and, and even for 13 year old me, that was a pretty incredible moment to meet a legend, you know, like he a, is a, a legend. True, true, true legend. Dale finally showed up and he told my mom, how long can he stay? And my mom said, well, that's up to you. You can stay. He said, well, he said, I, I got to, uh, I do the five o'clock news, the six o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news. And I'll tell you what, if you'll let him stay for the 10 o'clock news, I'll take him to Hooters for dinner. So, <laughs> yeah. so all of a sudden, not only was he kind of a local legend, he was the coolest guy on earth. Well, to me, yeah. uh, my mom picked me up at 6.31 p.m. as soon as the six o'clock newscast ended. <laughs> we ain't going to Hooters. No, which I think was Dale's way of getting rid of me politely. <laughs> That's a smart guy, yeah. I guess. 
And now, a few messages from our generous sponsors. But first, um, giving a shout out to my boy Badger. Badger is a uh, member of the Army who emailed me and recommended that we set up a telephone number where you can leave voicemails with feedback about our movement and podcast. Uh, we've gotten a, a ton of emails and we really appreciate them, but some people have a hard time when they're driving around or uh, when they're engaged in something and they want to leave a quick voicemail about the feedback about our movement and our podcast, how an episode touched or inspired you or take action or even story ideas, pretty much anything else, as long as it's not weird or creepy. So we thought it was an awesome idea. So Badger, this is for you and anyone else who wants to reach out to us through phone um, rather than email. The telephone number is 901-352-1366. Call us. Leave a voicemail about your ideas. Leave a voicemail about anything as it pertains to the Army, and we will get it, and we will respond. 901-352-1366. We'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. I did what you should do in college, which is kind of a question like, what do I actually want to do? Do I really want to do that? Do I really want to have that life? Is that something I'm interested in? Do I want to do that when I'm 45, 46, 47 years old, 57 years old? And uh, I had to declare a major. I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I had read the poem Under Milkwood by the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas and was fascinated by it and made the really sound life decision that based on that poem, I was going to get a degree in English literature Oh, boy. Um, yeah. English Lit, first of all, I love English Lit. Chaucer, the Canterbury Tales, the, I mean, the imagery and some of that stuff to me is just absolutely hilarious to this oh, day. Yeah. But um, English literature, uh, I, I don't know the data or the percentages on it. Well, I would say that 
75% of the people that major in English literature end up living on somebody's couch. Well, know. that was my dad's impression. Yeah. He's going to spend the rest I mean, of his life How do you life make money with it. English literature? <laughs> um, it's interesting. So I told my I told my parents <laughs> that once I, I got my degree in English literature, which was going to fulfill my obligation to them, uh, that I was going to try cooking. Um, really? Because I, cooking was interesting to me. It was fun. I, I There are so many things about it that I enjoyed. And that was my dad's out right then and there. He was like, no, no, no. If he works in a restaurant, he'll have a job for the rest of his life and he won't be sleeping on my couch. So there's, <laughs> you know, there's job security in his mind for his son. And also his son won't be sleeping on his couch. So they, you know, my parents encouraged me to go to culinary school and. Which means no more college. You move from college to culinary school. Well, technically college, yeah. Um, well, it, I mean, the school you were going to didn't have a culinary school, did it? No, or yeah, that's it? correct. No, no, no. Uh, at the time, no, no. And I ended up going to El Centro College in downtown Dallas, which is now the El Centro campus of Dallas College, um, and spent two years there and got my associates in food and hospitality service uh, about a, oh, maybe a semester or so into school you know they they just pound over the top of your head get a job in a restaurant get a job in a restaurant get a job in a restaurant which um, is like practical experience right well it's yeah it, so 100%. you're actually practicing what you're learning i guess well and learning what you're practicing right and yeah back and forth um and i'll never forget um i i got a job with a gentleman a, a local upscale caterer who happened to also own a a cookie dough business and we did catering for the very wealthy individuals around Dallas, but we would also make cookie doughs and sell these 11 pound buckets of cookie doughs to Whole Foods. And then Whole Foods would scoop them and bake them and call them house baked. Um, I'll be dead guy. Yeah. And so my first day on the job, all I was allowed to do was measure out ingredients for batches of cookie doughs because I was not trusted to touch the mixer. Uh, you know, and, uh, and I just remember like at the end of the day, they were like, okay, you can go. And I was like, I mean, I can stay. I can, I was like, this is, amazing like i'm creating and it was just measuring cookie dough ingredients um but it was but it was a passion for but it, was, it was i knew it i knew that i knew that day i was like this is where i'm supposed to be and what i'm supposed to be doing when i hear culinary school i think most uninformed people like me um think the same thing which is i think cordon bleu or blue or however you say it how do you say that properly le cordon bleu cordon bleu okay so you know, I, I think of that um, because I've heard of it before. But in reading on the way to meet you this morning about culinary school, the cooking is actually only a small part of it. A very small part. And, and that's the interesting part to me is culinary school, for those listening, is a business degree, too. It's it's about the business of how you run a restaurant and actually try to be profitable in the restaurant business, which is exceedingly difficult. Um, and, and, and talk about that a little bit. I mean, we're, we're talking about certainly learning how to, they're not training you to be Julia Childs. They're training you to be able to run a restaurant business in culinary school. And that's mundane stuff, right? Oh, uh, <laughs> People think I'm kidding when I say, you know, I had to take a, a, a restaurant equipment class in which I had to listen to a three-hour lecture on light bulbs. That's not a joke. 
And and Gus Katsigris, uh, the, the the godfather of of the culinary program at, at El Centro College, I mean he's famous for his light bulb lecture. Because okay, what's he, the big deal about light bulbs for a culinary guy? I mean, for, is it about keeping the food warm or something? Well, see, because Gus wasn't a chef; he was a restaurateur, uh. and so for him, you know, a chef focuses on the cost of food, the quality of ingredient, and the quality of what they're they're putting out, right? But a restaurateur is thinking about the cost of fixing plumbing, the cost of maintaining the chairs. Ask any restaurateur, and I guarantee you one of the top five things that bothers the hell out of them nonstop is the staff constantly turning down the air conditioning and then leaving it down when they leave the restaurant at night and you're paying for you know, cold air to keep the tables comfortable. Uh, In culinary school, do you talk margins? Oh, yeah. And how margins – I mean – People think that restaurants have these ginormous margins or not. They're really tight. I understand the margins are the biggest in iced tea, Diet Coke, and cocktails. Yes. Oh, alcohol for sure. That's where the money is. Yeah, alcohol for sure. But it's but I say that with it's what influenced me in Cafe Momentum and how we put together our. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm talking about it now. Don't no spoiler. Yeah, yeah, no, the, our alcoholic beverage program because you, you know take like a steakhouse, right? They've got a, a bottle of wine that they'll sell for $2,000 that their cost on it could be anywhere between $500 and $1,000. So the margins are great, but it may take them 18 months to sell that Yeah, wine. they're sitting on it for a while. Yeah. So it's it's uh, cash flow. Yeah, it's cash flow. Right. So that's I, I actually that's how I focus the, the, the alcohol sales at Cafe Minnow is to focus on cash flow. I don't know where I heard this. I actually think I read it in the maybe U.S. News and World Report, and I just now thought of it. This is not prepped at all, so I'll probably butcher this, and it may not even be close to right. But I'm almost sure that 60% of the startup restaurants in the United States fail within the first two years, yes. and and the one that – and that's surprising, but it's not – Truthfully, Chad, it's not that dissimilar from any startup business in the United States. It's hard to start a business. Yes. But the one that is shocking to me is of the surviving, quote, successful restaurants, most of them have fewer than 30 days cash flow on hand. And that's why the, that's why 60% fail. It's, it's the same. Diet. Is that right? Yeah, it, it is. And it's because people will spend every penny they have to get the doors open naively thinking that once you open the doors, the cash comes in and it solves everything. And that's not how it works. How's it work? It works because you have to have liquidity. You have to be able to have the cash on hand to sustain all the things that are going to happen that you didn't anticipate were going to happen when you built out this, you know, you had this, I'm just going to open a restaurant and people are going to come in. You didn't budget for the week that you have to close down because there's a gas leak and they've got to dig up the gas lines underground and you're closed and you've just lost $55,000 in revenue. Let's talk about that too. Listeners need to understand that in my business, I'm a lumberman, right? Yep. <clears throat> we manufacture lumber. If we break down and have a five hour breakdown, we, we lose that revenue yep. and we have those expenses. But, I can work on Saturday and make up that lost production right. and recoup that revenue. I'll have a little higher cost in it because I'm paying overtime, but I can make it up. Right. Or 
I can work five days, one hour overtime and work my crews, and I can make up that lost production, sell it, recoup that revenue, certainly at a little lower margin as a result of the higher cost of the labor it takes to do it, but I can recoup it. In a restaurant, if on Friday you can't open, there's no there's more no fr- recouping. That, that Friday's gone forever. It's done. It's, it's like time mm-hmm. that once it ticks off a clock, you never get those seconds back because – you're already open Saturday and Sunday and Monday. So there is no makeup time, and you can't work on Friday from midnight to 5 to make it up because nobody's going to come in the door. So if right. you miss a shift or a day that the doors open the restaurant business, it is literally gone forever. But the expenses of rent and utilities and everything else you have going on, you still incur them. So every day you're not open in the restaurant business is a net-net, pummeling it's a pummeling i i you know um everybody's been talking a lot about the 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 newest show the bear uh and everybody wants to talk to me about it and everybody wants to ask me you know how real is it how real and and everybody in the in the restaurant industry has their like oh they use the same deli cups that we all use to drink water out of and oh i'm like no the realest part of that show is that before service one day an hour before service the toilet explodes <laughs> and it's like okay who 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 knows how to fix the pipe who knows how, put that on your prep list who can clean up sh- literally uh off the like and, and it's like everybody just like because 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 not, we can't not we not can't open. open we can't you can't you can't you can't conduct a restaurant via zoom because and everybody on staff, like, there's no remote restaurant. No, and if you're and if you're and if you're hourly, and the restaurant closes, you're not getting paid, right? So and if that happens, you've already the restaurant itself has already bought perishable items. Yes, that you're going to sell that day. Yes, that if you don't sell them, yes, go in the go in the garbage. Well, and and that, that, that's another example, right? When we're talking about margins, as a restaurant, you're going to plan and prepare food as if you're going to be packed full of people and what happens if you're only half packed it's gone but what if you what if you are fully packed and only buy for half packed right then your customers are pissed off because you got nothing to serve them nothing to serve them and they're not coming back nothing like going into a restaurant and perusing a menu of 50 different items and finding that delectable delicious thing that you've done a great job marketing on the menu and explaining the cilantro and the whatever and all those words that nobody ever uses on some kind of remote heirloom tomato and some kind of Greer cheese or something. And you say, that's what I want. And then you sit there and you've had your cocktail and you're ready to order it. And you say, I'd like it. And the, and the, and the server says, Oh, I'm sorry. We're about we're out of that. We're out of that one. You just yeah. want to leave. Listen, as it's a... like getting screwed at the drive-through when oh, you yeah. order <laughs> when you order mustard, mayonnaise, pickle, and lettuce, and they serve it to you, and you're already halfway down the street, and you got ketchup and and onion on your burger, and you're just angry, but there's nothing you can do about it. Oh, it, it, it listen, as a chef, it eats me alive, and the chefs at Cafe Momentum know like we're only open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday for dinner. So on Thursday night, they're like, yeah, we're out of this. I'm like, how does that even happen? You've had four days. You've had four <laughs> days to order, prep, do everything. Like you had one job, just one. It drives me. Yeah, that that's that's because, you know, acceptable. ultimately that will lead to an upset customer. And for every one happy customer, I mean, you need 
a hundred good reviews to offset one bad one. You really do. No, you're a hundred percent right. And you can't, you can't have somebody walk out your door and happy. No. And you, you can't because also they just don't have to come back. Right. You know, and why do people go to restaurants? It's called hospitality. People go to restaurants because they get what they ordered. The, the expectation is met. The quality of food, the expectation is met. The quality of service, the expectation is met. The cleanliness, the ambiance, the expectation is met. And if it's not, they just don't come back. Yeah, they vote with their pocketbook. Yep. So you learn all that in culinary school. Well, <laughs> you learn all that through hard knocks and, and experience, but you are at least exposed to the realities of these things in culinary school. Yes. And you graduate. Yep. Well, Cafe Momentum is not your first stop. Tell me what you do from there. Well, I, it's fine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the day after I graduated from culinary school, my uh, my boss sat down with me, who's who, by the way, is a, an incredible human being, an incredible entrepreneur, taught me so much. I mean, didn't have to and did that I carry with me still to this day. But he, um, I graduated uh, the very next day. I had to work, and uh, it was a breakfast catering, and did all of that, got it done. Uh, he said, "Let me take you to lunch." Uh, sat me down. And said, and I was at the time an hourly employee making, uh, I made $7 and 50 cents an hour. And he said, now that you're out of school, let's move you into a salary position. Um, and he offered me a salary of $22,000 a year. I thought I was quite possibly the richest man in America I get at it. that point in time. I, I mean, it was like everything inside me driving home to not pull over at a car dealership and go ahead and just buy a brand new car. You know, I was just like, this is, this is it. I mean, 22K, are you kidding me? I got home and called my parents and was like, you're not going to believe what your son has done. I mean, uh, then I got that first paycheck and I was like, taxes. And, and like, I think like actually 750 an hour and working 65 hours a week. I think I was getting paid. Like, wait a minute here. Wait, wait, what's going on? Um, <laughs> But, you know, uh, and did that for uh, continue. I worked for him for a total of nine years and left there and had the opportunity to work at a, at a great restaurant with a rich history in Dallas called Parigi and be the daytime chef. And that was my first foray into restaurants. And called, restaurant. what's it called? Parigi, the Italian word for Paris. Paris. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Paris. And um, that was the first time for me to work in a restaurant kitchen at all. I'd done catering all before. And so it was kind of learning to ride a bike with uh you know one wheel instead of two wheels you know and and so you're learning and it was great and I loved it and it was incredible um ended up having a chance from Parigi to go on to be executive chef of a different restaurant uh lasted there about 6 months helped open a restaurant it, I wasn't the right fit for them and they were they weren't the right fit for me and left there and just thought you know kind of what do I want to do here I actually at the encouragement of my former boss and, and mentor enrolled in a class at SMU on entrepreneur entrepreneurialism. Oh. Um, and it was just a cert certificate class, but it was like, it was so great because they, they weren't just telling you about in teaching about entrepreneurialism and, and what are the best habits of entrepreneurs? What do entrepreneurs ask themselves? What keeps them up at night, but also kind of like, who are you and what do you want? And at the same time, my boss, the owner of Parigi and I, I had jumped in and was kind of helping her work in 
kind of filling in there. And she and I, through a series of conversations, she had mentioned that perhaps she would be interested in in selling the restaurant and then kind of said, you know what, I don't think I'm ready to sell, but I, I could use a partner. We talked about what partnership could look like. And um, it was beautiful because uh, she really loved catering and really wanted to do catering. I was so burned out on catering after nine plus years. Yeah, you wanted to be in the restaurant. And I wanted, and I wanted to be in the restaurant. And so it was, it was perfect. So in uh, the summer of 2007, I uh, sold my house and took the equity out of it, took out a loan and bought in to become a partner at Parigi Restaurant. Are you... Are you, uh, I hadn't gotten to this, but are you a father or married? At yeah, this time? Uh, a single dad. I have a, um, my daughter just turned 26 on my now. Yeah. Not yeah, then, yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Now, right. now, now. Yeah. And so she, um, I'm old, but not that old. Um, but she, uh, so my daughter at the time was 10. Um, and you're a single father. Yeah. Do you have yeah. custody ever? Uh, joint. Yeah. Joint. Shared. Yeah. So, you're literally mortgaging up, selling off everything, a single dad, to get a piece of a, a business. Yeah. Well, I, I, think, I don't goal. know what they taught you at SMU, but you went ahead and did the risk part of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I did the risk part. And here's the real risk of the risk part is, I'm going to say the year again, 2007. <laughs> There was a housing crisis that happened <laughs> shortly after. You know what? Something, Chad. Just some, so you and you know that you and I are, are uh, kindred spirits in one way. I started my business with seventeen thousand dollars in September first of two thousand one. So I feel your pain, bro. We are we are, we are kindred, and we're going to get into <laughs> even more how kindred we are when I tell you my other wise business decisions. But but it was, I mean. I was in culinary school. I had one goal. That was to to own a restaurant, be the chef. And and this, this was the shot. This presented the perfect opportunity. Um so I I did. I bought in and and then the economy tanked. And literally restaurants closing around us left and right. And and I, you know, was trying to be proactive and talking to my business partner and saying, like, she started coming in and bartending during the week. And I started coming in and hosting at lunch during the daytime. So we could cut costs. We had the kitchen team that the, the morning crew that would come in because we were open lunch and dinner, the morning crew would come in, we would make them leave an hour early and the evening crew come in, we'd make them come in an hour later. And they were all really disgruntled and annoyed and frustrated, yeah, but you're trying to stay open until all their friends started losing their jobs. Right. And they still had a job. And not only did they have a job, but in spite of the recession, in spite of all these restaurants closing, my first year of co-ownership, we grew the business by almost 40%. And when everybody else, when was, everybody closing. else was closing. And I was right, right around that time nominated by a prominent local publication as best up-and-coming chef in Dallas. And, you know, it was at that point I was like... I'll tell you what, you are a risk-taking genius. I mean, look at you. you Did are... you hurt your shoulder patting yourself yeah. on the back? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, I, you know, it was you great. You risk-taking genius. genius. You good cooking son of a gun. I mean, I just thought, I mean, there's there's restaurants available. Let's build the empire. Here we go. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and just... Um, and it was, and it was, it was a fun time, um, getting to like, um, you know, Dallas is full of, of really great restaurants, really incredible chefs. And to, to be a part of, of that community 
It felt like Sunday suppers at my grandparents' house. You know? I bet it did. It was. I mean, you're fortunate at this time in your life because you're able to match the discipline you love with something you're passionate about it that actually connects you to the essence of who you are, the way you grew up. Oh, 100%. Listen, I will live my entire life just trying to be half the person that my mom was. Wow. Um, she was, uh, when she passed, my lifelong friend Katie referred to her as all the bubbles in the champagne. And I like, wow. I can't think of a better way to describe her. Um, she lit up every room that she walked into. She made every person that she talked to feel like they were the only person in the room and they were the most important thing. There wasn't anything that you could possibly need that she didn't anticipate and was there to support. I, I don't, I, you know, I, I know that she slept because I grew up in the house. I mean, she slept, but it doesn't feel like she slept because she did all the things. My parents um, used to have a, a, a routine of, you know, they would eat at this restaurant on Monday night, this restaurant on Tuesday night, this restaurant on Wednesday night. And it typically revolved around the wine specials. Um, <laughs> but they would go, they would go eat at the Olive Garden every, I think it was every Monday night or Wednesday night because of the wine specials. And they befriended uh, a couple that served there, husband and wife. And they were, they were uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe. And uh, my mom would throw them baby showers. You're kidding. It was the server. It was the server from the Olive Garden. And my mom would throw them baby showers. That's that's who she was. You know, she just. Is there any irony that there were immigrants from Eastern Europe where there is thousands of years of culture serving at the Olive Garden in America. Is there any irony to you? Well, that? you know, it, 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 it's funny, too, because they actually opened up their own Italian restaurant. Uh, there you go. <laughs> There's redemption. There it is. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. I would hate for their culinary experience to stop at Olive Garden. Y- yes. No. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I, I mean, imagine me as a chef being like, right. yeah, like telling that story. I'm like, my parents ate it all. Ago. <laughs> my parents ate it all ago. But, you know, the, the bottomless salad, it's a, it's a thing. <laughs> so you, um, you've reached, despite economic difficulties uh, from a macro sense, just the the world we lived in in 2000, mid 2007 through early 2009, obviously once again, tagging on our kindred spirits, own a lumber company, lumbers go into building. So you can imagine my life in mid 2007 through 2009 as well. And I, my friend did not grow anything 40% from that (laughs) period of time. I hung on with every ounce of, fingernail and duct tape that I could, but we made it through. If you well. could afford the duct tape. At the oh time. gosh. Yeah. No, we stole that. Um, so, but I, I, I get it. And you've reached now you're getting awards. You're being, you're being recognized as not only a, 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 I mean, it's, it's really important to me that people understand the restaurant business. It is very much a two pronged thing. Their cre- creativity and the ability to cook pleasing food that people want to come back to and do it at a cost that the restaurant can sell it and be profitable so that they can replicate it and be consistent with it week after week after week. That's the one thing. The other thing is just managing the front of the house, the back of the house, the shrinkage from your bartenders and your liquor, the shrinkage from the food, the whole shooting match. 
But here you are in some of the most trying times we've had in a couple decades, and you've grown this business 40%, and you're getting awards as a guy that can actually cook pretty damn good. <laughs> I mean, you're on top of the world. I, it felt like it. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened? Um, right at the one-year mark of co-ownership, uh, I was on the board of directors of a very small organization called the Dallas Farmers Market Friends. I'm out. Yep. I told you we'd get to this. I was flown into Dallas two years ago to keynote that group. Wow. That is how I know who you are. Because <laughs> some dude came up to me and said, have you ever heard of the amazing work being done at Cafe Momentum? <laughs> And they said, he's not here today. I'd love to introduce you. And I said, no, but send me some stuff. And a week later, some guy from that organization, it's called the Dallas Powers. What's it called? Dallas, uh, Dallas Farmers Market Friends. Yeah. Um, that group uh, sent me something on you. So there you have it. What a, what a small world. Small world. Small well, world. So anyway, you're, yeah. you're, oh, wow. you're working on this thing. Uh, yeah, so so I'm, I was a, a board member for Dallas Farmers Market Friends, um, loved it. I, I'm I've always been since you know, the time that I was a, a child going in my grandparents' backyard and my grandfather's growing tomatoes and cucumbers and jalapenos and I'm, doing the very childish thing of grabbing a cucumber and biting it, throwing it out, you know, <laughs> um, but you know as a as an adult as a chef. Knowing where your food came from represented integrity and represented the integrity that you were providing to people that were coming in to eat your food. Uh, it also meant supporting local business people because you're putting money in a farmer's pocket. So I created these round tables for chefs and farmers to come together and have conversation to understand farmers to kind of understand the relentlessness of the restaurant world and for chefs to understand that, you know, a farmer has to farm. They can't just be running produce to your restaurant all day. Um, <laughs> they actually have to grow that. Yeah, stock. they actually have to do that. You know, um, uh, I love. I, I worked with a farmer one time before, and they said, "Hey, is it, we're, we're growing kohlrabi. Do you want to buy our kohlrabi?" And I was like, "Yeah." Like, how much are you guys growing? They're like, "Well, once we pull it out of the ground, it's not growing anymore. So we'll have about forty pounds." <laughs> <laughs> what is what is that? Like, what is kohlrabi? Is a uh, like a Japanese root vegetable. It's delicious, similar to a turnip. Might even be in the turnip family. I don't know, but what do you but, do? But for me, uh, well, for I made. What do you do? I, I did it well. So I made a lot of stuff with it because I I was like, well, I guess it's a one shot ingredient, yeah. right? Like I'm not gonna have it next week. Yeah. So we pickled some of it. We put some of it in salads. We smoked some of it and turned it into a soup. That's cool. Um, we we, had, we just had a lot of fun with it. But it was. But it was, that's the part of the culinary stuff yeah. that's fun. You get to be creative yeah. and do yeah. stuff that most people haven't. Tasted yeah. or eaten before, it, it, and 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 you know it was uh, maybe a bit audacious to be like all kohlrabi all the time, but you know we had fun with it. Um, uh, it was it was it was great, but but um but the farmers market friends um was just starting a um, ice cream competition contest uh, named after the founder of Dallas Farmers Market Friends, Mama Ida Pappert. So it was Mama Ida's ice cream social. And, and they had, why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be? Uh, and the idea was to get college culinary students to participate and make ice cream. And, and, and we would market it and get people to come down to the farmer's market. They'd pay $5 to taste a sample of each of the ice creams, and then they would vote on which one they liked the best. The winning student would get $100. And, and we, had, you know, the, the, the rest of the proceeds, we would 
you know, support the farmer's market in some way. Um, and there was a gentleman that was on the board as well that was the executive director of an organization that was doing programming inside one of the Dallas County juvenile detention facilities. And it just so happened that some of the programming he, he did was, was culinary related. And so when we're talking about the ice cream social, he said, well, can I bring eight kids from juvenile detention? And uh, everybody on the board is like, I mean, this is genius. This is like philanthropy squared, right? Like this makes us double good. Yes, absolutely. And so his exact words in that moment were great. I just need to find someone to teach him how to make ice cream. And it was at that exact moment that 10 other hands pointed <laughs> right, right at me you. <laughs> and said, he'll do it. We'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. A month later, I was in juvenile detention, there to teach eight young men to make ice cream. For me, the moment that I walked into that facility... I met those eight young men. I felt arguably the greatest sense of shame I've ever felt. Um, Talk about that. Well, the moment I met these eight. I know that feeling, by the way. Yeah. When I first showed up to Manassas High School, the media of movies and TV and, frankly, the news, and the sensationalism that goes around poorer people from inner city areas that end up in juvenile detention is so sensationalized that you think from all the stuff you've been fed that you know exactly what those people are and who they are, how they are, why they are. And the reality is the antithesis of the sensationalized pictures we are fed daily. And so I get where you're coming from. And, Tell, I, and I did it right. The, the, it's I stereotyped them. You use the I judged shame them. because yeah. I. So, explain what you shame found. because I thought I was a better person. Hmm. I thought I was better than that. I I didn't. You know, I thought I was non-judgmental, or you know that that I I grew up running around the inner city, 
and knowing kids from the inner city and which, knowing who they which were, which gave and you how they quote were. credibility, right? Well, supposedly, not, not necessarily no, the kids. I, I'm being yeah. facetious. Oh yeah, yeah. No, in yeah, your absolutely. own mind, it gives you credibility. credibility. I thought I had oh, credibility. Oh yes. Oh, a hundred percent. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, I'm. I'm real. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I, I thought, but but the moment I met him, I realized I wasn't. I wasn't real. Because I, I, I had, I had stereotyped them. I had labeled them. I was wrong. I thought I knew better. I thought I was a better person, but I did it. I succumbed to exactly what you talked about, the sensationalism, the things that you're fed. And the moment that I met him and I was confronted with that reality, literally face to face. And, and tell, describe to our listeners what you found. I found eight young men who were excited to meet me, who were brilliant, who were thoughtful, who were curious, who didn't judge me. And they probably had more reason to judge me than I did them. And they were also teachers. You know what you described? A normal 14, 15 year old kid, a normal 14 or 15 year old kid. Yeah. So here's the thing. It's interesting what you said because, I, again, I'm, I, I don't want to evoke too much of my own stuff here, but it, it, you are bringing out stuff in me through this conversation that I feel and remember. I have often said the kids at Manassas accepted me into their world much more readily than my world would have accepted them. them in. And when you said they were curious and interested to meet you and kind to you, that's what creates shame for me. Is that, wow, you know, and, and is that what you felt was like this sense of, holy moly, these are just kids. They're, they're just kids. And, you know, like I, I spent three and a half hours making ice cream with them. Um, one of the best cooking times I've ever had, like we were, we, we, we had a, a local produce company that was kind enough to donate just, I mean, cases of pineapples and mangoes and strawberries and blackberries and raspberries and jalapenos and tarragon and basil and, you know, all this stuff. And we had a party. I mean, we were, I was cutting up watermelon and slicing jalapenos and giving them like a little slice of jalapeno watermelon. Oh, you know, they're trying everything and we're having a great time. And I came up with a rule. I was like, okay, so every one of your ice creams has to use at least two fruits and at least one herb and a jalapeno can be an herb, you know, like, and we had a blast. And, and two days later, these same eight young men were, were, were brought by the juvenile department to the farmer's market. And each hold, hold it. Not there yet. Not okay. there yet. You said curious. Yeah. Is it, it had to have been the first time these kids ever thought about, fruit and herbs and ice cream in the same sense. I, I remember distinctly that there was a young man of, of Mexican heritage who had never had a fresh mango before. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and it was like, I mean, I mean, I, 15 years later, that still is like permanently stuck in my head and watching. And I was just thinking like, and me working in kitchens with with predominantly people from Mexico and understanding, you know, mango was everything. They put a mango in everything, you know. And but this kid came from such a, a disenfranchised, poor background that he'd never even had a fresh mango in his. Well, life. it's it's the seed planting for me of things that you begin to learn later on as right. you get deeper and deeper into it, right? Like the concept of a food desert. 
Um, the idea, you know, the idea that our city today, I, I can't even begin to guess how many grocery stores there are north of downtown Dallas in the hundreds, probably. And there are three south of downtown Dallas, but the same number of people, but the same number of people. So I do have a quick question. You said jalapeno. Yeah. And ice cream. Yeah. It's it got is, a fire and ice thing it is going Texas. on there. Oh, boy, we I don't put barbecue and ice cream here. Yeah, well, oh well, hold on. Now I'm from Memphis. We can, we're, we can argue barbecue. You grill beef, you barbecue pork, but we can have that argument later, okay? Um, so and now we're getting into fighting words. <laughs> oh yeah, we're gonna get into it about that. Um, so yeah, the way you don't barbecue beef. This whole Texas barbecue thing is a complete misnomer, but. I'll digress. We can argue about that later. So you have this enlightening experience with this eight kids that that actually humbled you. And taught me. And taught you. Humbled in the truest sense of the word humbled, right? I think we we use the word humbled wrong. When we win an award, uh, we say we're humbled. You you weren't humbled. When you get punched in the face and knocked down, you're humbled. I was going to say, it brought you to your knees, metaphorically. It knocked me me flat on my rear. Yeah. And so... These eight kids are going to enter the ice cream contest against college culinary students. Love it. Tell us about it. So they show up at the farmer's market and these college culinary students had the salt and pepper checkered chef pants on. They had chef coats on. I I still joke to this day. Some of them had those stupid tall hats on. I mean, it was like a real thing, you know? Uh, And then here's these eight young men and they've got on like khaki jail issued pants and white t-shirts and these, Jail issued flip flop slides that look like they were going to fall apart. You know, just they're kind of Crocs. Uh, well, at the time back then, Crocs wasn't a thing. So oh, okay, but that's two thousand eight open toed Croc looking things yeah, is yeah. unfortunately what the footwear is. Yeah, and so um, uh, and they show up to this culinary thing. Yeah, and and and, and, they, and they show looking up. like that. And and I, I told a group recently, I was like, if you just close your eyes and imagine that scene, it just just imagine. The college students and, and and these young men coming from detention, and you see pride. Who are you seeing pride coming from? Because if if you're like anybody else, you're probably thinking these college students, pride with their chef coats, all that stuff. No, it was the eight young men. They were the proud ones. They were the ones standing so tall, so proud, so excited, and 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 they're competing. And um, at the end of the competition, one of the young men won the whole thing. He beat the college, just beat everybody. Um, by the way, his flavor was cantaloupe, strawberry, and basil. I was just about to ask you, <laughs> what, like, hold it, cantaloupe, strawberry, and basil ice cream. Yep. Was the ice cream itself like vanilla-ish ice cream? No, no, no. It was more of like a sorbet. Um, I got you. Yeah, yeah. And it was cantaloupe, basil, and? And, and strawberries. And he made it? Yeah. How cool is that? Uh well, what was cool was to watch him and the look on his face. And, and I mean, he, he just took off running at me, just gets right in my face, arms cocked, knees bent. And he's just screaming at the top of his lungs as if we're across the room from one another. Sir, I just love to cook. Wow. And I just bent my knees, cocked my arms and screamed right back in his face. Sir. Me too. <laughs> can, can I think I think it's important that we make sure we're bringing folks along 
with something I know that you now understand, which is, how old was that kid? 16, 15, 16, 16, yeah. If you're in a youth detention facility, there are the very small amount of people who have born mental illness, bipolar, schizophrenia, that, you know, that's, that's sorting out a whole different set of problems. Mm-hmm. But in truth, it is a very, very small yes. number of what we would say has psychosomatic illness. 95% of those kids, I don't know that number, but it's close, are there because they were kicked out of school or they got in trouble repeatedly or whatever, but they are not psychosomatically ill. No. They are socially ill. And the reason the vast majority of them are socially ill is because they come from some background that is wrought with one or more of trauma, physical abuse, sexual abuse, social abuse, um, parentlessness, homelessness, or such abject poverty that they literally had to fight just to eat. That is what the population of these kids locked up are the vast majority of. So if you remember that this kid that just won an ice cream contest came screaming to you, sir, I just love to cook, that very likely was the nicest setting. The The competition itself where it's being held very, very likely was the nicest setting he'd ever been in his life. And very possibly that was the most positive, amazing thing to have ever happened to him in his life. This was a Super Bowl for this kid. Well, <clears throat> you're just going right into the very next thing that he said to me was, and I knew his story. He taught me. Was my story close? Yes. I knew. I mean, sorry, was his story close to what I described? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, yeah. And, and the, 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 um, District attorney, speaking of barbecue, the district attorney for Wyandotte County, Kansas City, Kansas, told me one time, you know, it's not the choices people make, it's the choices they're given. And so true. It is so true. If and, you are given three choices and all of them have bad outcomes, you, it, it's not that you can't make a choice. You just try to choose the least worst. And unfortunately, there's a large segment of, in our population of children who are forced to make those choices every day at the least worst. And so to know his story, to understand that circumstance, um, to hear him say very next thing he said to me was, I just love to make food and give it to people and put a smile on their face. Hmm. Now I know a lot of people that love to make food and sell it to people to make and pay rent. And that's noble. Which which world with that? Nothing. That's business. That's There's life. Absolutely nothing wrong. And I know a young man that deserved in every way to make food and sell it and make money to help with rent, to help with food, to help with all those things. But he said, I just love to make food and give it to people and put a smile on their face. I've never heard a human being describe their heart in a more beautiful way at a more perfect time. Um, Who, by the way. Yeah came from the type of background we're talking about and 
if the vast majority of the people listening to us saw him walking down the street, would because of the sensationalism they've been fed about this kid, they would, would sum them up and cross the other side. Yep. Yep. Meanwhile, there's a soul in there that just wants to cook and give away food. Well, and you think about um he has to take that. What they just did was they 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 talked to him and they told him who they thought he was and he has to walk with that. And and walk in a world that says um, this is not who I want to be, but everybody's just told me I am. I'm fulfilling their prophecy, not mine. So he says, when I get when he says when I get released, I am going to get a job in a restaurant. And I, in my mind, am thinking, "Wow, I mean, this, this is incredible." He then asked me on whether I think he should work at Wendy's or Chili's. Um. Heeding the advice of my father, I told him, whoever hires you first and whoever pays you the most money second. Um, and that was it. Um, he was under custody of the Dallas County Juvenile Department, so I was not allowed to get any of his information. Uh, and at the time, was so scared to death to give him my information because I thought that was not allowed either. And I didn't want to get in any trouble because I, I wanted to be able to do more. Um, and so... I, I drove home that day realizing I'd never see him again. Um, but also realizing that he was never going to make it to a Wendy's or Chili's. Um, God, it's so deflating. Oh man. You go from, you go from the highest high, right? Being so excited to angry, being so inspired to, to sad. Um, and it goes back to, you know, what you were bringing up earlier is there's this, um, it was this moment of all these things happening, right? My childhood and the and the, and the things that I saw and didn't see in, in the different communities and and the experiences I had and and my my personal you know upbringing and and and, and home life and comparing and contrasting it to what I knew of his and thinking through and you know just coming for me it was this um, this just you know like running into a brick wall a, a reality of just understanding. Um, that it wasn't it wasn't just that he's going to go back to the same house and the same street and the same neighborhood and the same you know lack of resource and education food healthcare etc um it was the fact that like for he and I our lives were dictated by choices that were made for us for we were born um because of the color of our skin because of the socioeconomic class we were born in the part of town that we were born in um, all those resources access or in access to, and I was given abundant of resources growing up. I was given so many resources. Um, I didn't have to think about it. I was given so many opportunities to succeed. I was given so many opportunities to fail and try again. Actually, that one's the most important one. We'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U S economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. 
Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. The opportunity to fail, but have a safety net to catch you so that you can go yet again. Go yet again. Is the big one because so yes. many of these kids, if they fail, there's nothing. It's nothing. Well, you just, just look Actually, at. Actually, jail. Yeah. That's what's yeah. below them. And then it's done. Right. I mean, we can look at all the data. Now you're institutionalized. Yes. Now you're in the system. And, yes. the, and breaking out of that is rough. I, I was in. Denver recently and we were doing some research and stuff like that. And it's, it is something like 80% of all prisoners in the state of Colorado, adult prisoners, adult prisoners. Yes. 80% of all adult prisoners in the state of Colorado had a juvenile record. Right. See, that's, that's in every way we're, we're having a, a mayor's election in Memphis as we speak. And there's 10 top 10 issues in Memphis and they are crime, 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 and crime. And so now everybody's getting out all their their data, their metrics, their analytics, and it, but it, it, that that was one. It's interesting, she said Denver. I I guess I, you can, It's probably every city in the country. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm like, just quoting Colorado because it, I had researched it. It's like 87 percent of adults in the prison system in and around Shelby County were all in the juvenile system. Yes, it's 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 a. It's it's a <laughs> so if we're starting at eighteen to try to fix this, we're late. No, we're we're super late, and and I think um, and this is the other thing that um, not not to go off on a uh, on a tangent or climb up a soapbox, but if I had a nickel for every time I've heard somebody say the system is broken, <laughs> uh, I'd be a very wealthy person. But I challenge people all the time: it is not broken. Broken systems just don't work. The system is doing exactly what it's designed to do. It starts when they're 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, and it just keeps them going. I had a friend that was a former public defender that said the saddest thing for him was was, was being a public defender for an 11-year-old because you knew you had job security for six more years. Wow. Because you would continue to represent that child every time they went to court until they became an adult. And then... And then the adult public defender now had a client for life. Yes. Yes. 11, bro. 11. 11. 11. I I, I can't, um, I get so. That's what, fourth, fifth, third, eight, nine. That's fourth, fifth grade. Yes. Yes. This is, this is when you're supposed to be hanging out with your buddies and playing hide and seek and playing on your church or, or youth sports teams and watching 
cartoons or video games or whatever the heck it is. This is a let you're not supposed to be in jail. You're not supposed to be in jail and you're not supposed to be having to make not the make choices based on the choices you're given. The least worst available least to worst you, available. which is also bad. Yeah. And 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 that's the thing that um I, I feel like is the most important thing that people hear is a child that goes to jail is not their fault. We have failed them somewhere along the lines. So we can complain all day long about jails and overpopulation and, and the cost and how much money we spend on incarcerating people and all this stuff. But until we as a society make the decision that we're going to invest in their lives early on, then we're never going to change. One of my mantras is the greatest success. No, the greatest measure of the success of a leader is the actions of the followers. Yep. Okay. So let's be a chef in a kitchen. (laughs) If the food's coming out cooked properly, tasting good on time and delivered, you probably got a chef handling it. Mm -hmm. If the food's late, it tastes like crap. It's burnt. It's watery. It's probably not all the people in the kitchen prepping. It's probably the chef. Yeah. The greatest six, the, the greatest measure of the success of the leaders, the actions of the followers. Let's take that to a micro view. Whose fault is it that 10 or 11-year-olds are in jail? Is, if the greatest success, if the greatest measure of the success of leadership is the actions of the followers, and we got 9, 10, 11-year-old kids going into jail, I would argue it's a success of the leadership of those kids. And that includes the parents. That includes the school system. That includes society. That includes um, the, 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 the political and social systems that allow this continue to happen. I would suggest that these kids have absolutely no leadership in their life and as a result are off the rails. Well, and I think um, it's worth noting because like we were talking about earlier, three grocery stores south of of downtown Dallas, right? And 45% of the population of the city living south of downtown Dallas. Um, These these children come from families that come from families that come from families that come from families that have gone through these same generational. Yeah. And so we're in, in we, but in, in, in leadership tells them, figure it out. Right. That's my point. But I'm not going to give you any tools. I'm not going to give you any resources. I'm not going to do anything to help. So just figure it out. Hey, we're the freest country in the world. Pull your boots up by your straps and go get them, kid. Right. But you, but, but, but how? But how? But how? I, 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 I gave a kid a ride one time from his house to a restaurant, and it was a 12-minute car ride. 12 minutes. Hopped on a highway, hopped off, went over. While he was interviewing for the job, I looked up public transportation. It was four bus transfers an hour and a half each way. Now, explain to me how we're telling a kid, go get a job. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go work somewhere that took me a three-hour commute for a twelve-minute car ride. Mm-hmm. We're asking somebody to do something that we wouldn't even do ourselves. Right. That's a fallacy of leadership. So, do as I say, not as I do. Here you have this restaurant, these accolades, and now this experience mm-hmm. of the ice cream kids. Mm-hmm. You're driving home, going, "It's sad." 
that Wendy's or Chili's is what he sees as culinary. But what's even more sad, that even as low a bar as that is, he won't even make it there. And you're feeling these range of bipolar emotions of excitement and, and sadness and and feel good, but also shame and all of it. But now you got to go back to work or run your restaurant, or do you? Um, well, at the time, yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, I wanted to, um, it, it was, it was in that moment on that drive home where I just thought, um, this is so, okay. You know, this is the way the world works. So what are you going to do? Um, and you know, option a was to just go back to my restaurant, pretend that other part just kind of didn't exist and build my empire. Uh, the other part was to lean in, to listen and learn more. I chose to listen, lean in and learn more. And, uh, I spent time, um, uh, inside the juvenile facility and I was, um, uh, would, would, would teach cooking classes every so often and working with the kids. Um, I found out some years later uh, that, a, a gentleman that worked in the juvenile apartment that was a supervisor in the facility at the time told my entire staff that he thought I was the craziest SOB he'd ever met. Cause I walked into juvie and gave kids knives <laughs> and he said, but it taught him a very valuable lesson, which is the kids responded to my belief in them and, and expectation <clears throat> that they could succeed. And they responded to that. <laughs> and it was a lesson to him. Um, <clears throat> but I spent time teaching cooking classes. We made a lot of fried rice. It was inexpensive and the kids loved it. <laughs> and so I uh, spent most of that time, though, listening. You know, I was earning trust um, and listening. Uh, I listened to the staff. I listened to the kids. The staff talked a lot about consistency and stability in, in every way, right? If you say you're going to do something, if you say you're going to show up at 2 o'clock on Friday to teach class, you better be here at 159 ready to teach class. But also, the- Can I, I want to interject something about that. Um, one of the kids that I coached years ago from the inner city talked about that very thing. Yep. And he said, all you have to do is not show up and then you're common. Yep. And if you want our attention, be uncommon. And what he was saying was everybody in their life says they're going to do something. Doesn't. Yep. It's just, this is you, blah, blah, blah. Yep. This is me. I don't care. Yep. And when you're someone, it's so odd, it's so unfortunate that by simply doing what you say you're going to do and being consistent and showing up every time you say makes you uncommon and makes you someone worth an, an eyelid raise, yeah. worth maybe, uh, I might give this guy a look. Yeah. But that kid told me, he said, it, look, if you don't show up, it just makes you common. But if you want our attention, be uncommon. I will never forget that. But that's exactly what that guy said. I, I they're the wisest people I know. I mean, I always tell people, like, our young people have the the the, the best BS indicator ever. Ever. Sniff it out. They're like so Geiger fast. counters for BS. Oh, yeah. Those kids know it because they've lived it and they see it and they can pick it out in 15 seconds. So fast. And, and then, we're, you know, cooking with the kids – in, in understanding their lives and their lived experience and their stories and what consistency and stability has played into why they're in detention. Lack of. Lack of, yeah. And that's where 
the, the, the initial framework for Cafe Momentum came about is I literally uh, was on the phone with my business partner one night and I was complaining that I had been working with the kids for about a year and I hadn't done anything and I felt kind of like a fraud. Like, I mean, you're showing up in the classes, but you're just, you're supposed to do something else. You're supposed to do something else. And she just kind of snapped me to it and said, then what do you want to do? And I said, I just want to open a restaurant and let the kids run it. She said, it's kind of cool. It's like, I think we've both been drinking, but (laughs) (laughs) we'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Um, I went to the gentleman who ran the programs in the facility who, you know, provided me the opportunities to have access to working with youth and so forth. And I just said, you know, I, this is kind of what I want to do. And I expected him to say, you're out of your tree. Yeah. What is wrong with you? Yeah. And he, he literally just looked at me and said, okay. And I was like. There's a problem. I surround with myself but, with some real crazy people but, here. But there's a problem with him saying okay. Now you actually got to do oh, it. Yeah, no, hundred <laughs> percent. He didn't. He didn't put a barrier up that stopped your crazy self. You're like, uh oh. Yeah. Now it's on. Yeah, and, and, and the and the false arrogance that everybody I talked to was going to say, <laughs> okay, you know, um, because uh, that didn't happen. You no. Know, no, I I I started because the the stigma. Bingo. around these kids still exist. I was I was asked by a gentleman within the first 15 seconds of the conversation, okay, let's just cut to it. You and I both know. What are you going to do when those kids stab each other in the kitchen? Yeah. So and ridiculous. I, 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 I'm more scared about you stabbing me in the back <laughs> than any guy. of these kids. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, I was told repeatedly, you know, those kids don't want to work. They just want to collect a check. Mm. I was told repeatedly. Can we, can we, can we go ahead and go ahead and put this out there that the welfare queen story is BS also. Okay. Continue. Oh, such, 
I know. Such a hair. But it's but the problem with it is it leads to more objectification. Yes. And and it leads to more of this generational BS about poor kids. It's just objectification wrong. and justification. And just for and justification for the way you feel. Yes. 100%. Because we make up these ridiculous narratives that become that become somehow fact that have no basis in fact. I, I, I'm going to butcher this and totally get it wrong. Um, it's all right. I get most but, of my stuff wrong. But it was it. something. My show. I, I read something to. a couple of years ago where like the state of Florida introduced this legislation that in order to receive, you know, welfare dollars, you had to pass a, a drug test and all this stuff. And they spent tens of millions of dollars rolling out this program and saved like $15,000. Like it was something absurdly ridiculous. Yeah, but it made everybody feel good. But everybody thought, oh, we're doing okay, you know. we're, 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 we're. And it. And it's, it's, yeah. It's um, the problem because you have to understand the truth about kids. And the truth yes. about kids is the zip code at the time of your birth should have nothing to do with whether or not you end up in jail at 11-year-olds or not. But the truth is it, it does. does. And the other truth is that infant, that child, that, that, that kid, um, given a level playing field, is very likely to spash your own children if they only had that level. And Most likely to. And by, I, I actually believe that all of, this, all of these stories and the sensationalism and everything around it actually gives us license to not feel guilty about the way we think of this segment of our society. And it is so patently wrong. Um, we can just end the whole thing right here on that statement. I mean, that is the truthest truth um, that I hope people get out of this today. It is patently wrong. It is. And that was my problem in going around trying to open this restaurant was this is what I was up against. And it didn't matter that I was up against it. It's what these young people were up against every single day of their life. And I just remember thinking to myself, if you actually met them, if you actually stood face to face with them, if you actually talked to them, you would never, not in a million years, would you ever, ever say that about them. In fact, you would do the opposite. And so Based on that. So then it's like, based on how that do theory, I get these I, kids yeah. in front of you? How do I do it? Yeah. How do I do it? And I know food. So I came up with this idea of I am, and, and this is, this is, you know, 2000, late 2000, early 2011. And, and there, there was this new kind of it thing going on in the food world, these underground dinners and pop-up dinners and mm, all this stuff. Yeah. And I was like, I, I, I'm going to take oh, advantage of this. you did pop-up dinners. Yes. So I, the first pop-up dinner I did was June 2011. And the idea was to go in one of the top restaurants in Dallas. And it had to be one of the top restaurants in Dallas. Because what I'm going to show you that the kids are capable of, I'm going to show you at the highest echelon of what they're capable of. Makes sense. So go in one of the top restaurants in Dallas on a Sunday. It's also night. a little bit of a shocking picture for people. Yeah. They don't expect to see them well, there. If you're saying that they can't they can't cook my food, I'm gonna show you that they can cook the best food in the city. And do it on your turf. Uh, uh, yes. And so the idea uh, 
go in one of the top restaurants in Dallas Sunday night when the restaurants close, sell tickets to a private dinner. Chef writes a four course menu, the, the staff, not only helping the chef and working alongside the, the chef team in the kitchen, but serving to the level and quality of service of that restaurant were eight young men that we would bring in from a juvenile detention. And facility. these kids are servers, dishwashers that they're, they're, they're all the parts of the kitchen. The design, and the staff. The design was that four of them would work in the kitchen for the first two courses while four of them served. And then we would flip-flop them halfway wow. through so that they would get a little experience on both. Now, the first dinner, the goal was to get 50 people to pay $50 to come to the dinner. I had absolutely no belief that any human being, just based on lived experience of what people would say about the kids, is that anybody would show up. So much so that I, I would devised a plan to call my mom and have her guilt the ladies in her Bible study class. And I, and this was, and, we'll and, get and, somebody there for these kids. I to mean, cook these her. ladies, I'm like, you know, ladies, you're the, the clock is ticking here. You really need to do some good things in your life. Um, yeah. And, and, and this may be a little better than Olive Garden. Yeah, <laughs> that's the goal. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but, but but myself and, a, and another gentleman, there were five of us organizing this dinner, and myself and one of the gentlemen organized the dinner. We we, we posted a, a little write up about the dinner on 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 our Facebook pages and 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 put a link to PayPal, and uh, the dinner sold out. And, and before we could shut the PayPal off, the dinner had sold out in in less than twenty four hours. Wow! It was sixty three people showed up at that dinner, and sixty three people gave these young men a standing ovation at the end of the night. And sixty three people walked out of that restaurant and looked me right in the eye and said, "You know, this could be my son." Wow. Bingo. Um, so we went on and, and we started. Uh, now you know the kids. Now you know. You, once you know them, you'll never say that about them. And you need to know them. So fast forward, the dinners become very, very popular. They're selling out by, by, by like the end of, of 2011, beginning of 2012. They're selling out like 15 seconds. 15 seconds? Literally. And I, and I can. Did I can, you not learn at SMU or in culinary school, raise the price? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a give and take to that, right? Because the, the, what I knew was it was going to take us 25 years of pop-up dinners to raise enough net profit off of each pop-up dinner. To, to, to open a restaurant, right? Yeah, it's got so it was fundraising it, too. It was right. So it was it was keeping the buzz and leveraging that into bigger. So bigger you didn't want to chase people off by raising the price. It was more important to get them in, know the kids, so that you could go I back wanted to, to them. I wanted to tell the mayor, "I'm sorry, sir, we're sold out." I love it. And so about a year into those dinners, I just had another one of those moments, and I sat down and talked to my business partner and just said, "You know, I I need to walk the talk." Um, to exactly what you said earlier, I didn't want to be common. And I knew those kids have been fed lines their entire lives, and I didn't want to be one of them. And I wanted to show them that I was willing to walk the talk. So I walked away from Parigi um, to focus my full time and attention on getting a permanent brick-and-mortar cafe momentum open. And uh, it took us three and a half years total and 41 pop-up dinners over that time before Cafe Momentum finally opened its doors on January 29th, 2015. Which means you walked away from what you thought was your pinnacle. I thought it was the, the, the you, empire. You, you mortgaged your house. You owned the restaurant. People are writing articles about you. You are the man. 
You grew this restaurant's revenue 40% in the middle of the housing crisis, one of the most difficult times. People are shutting down. You're growing. People are writing about you. You've reached your pinnacle. And the truth is, it was still only a step to what is now the real pinnacle. Well, it's um, it's funny because um, I've, I've had conversation about this before and in people really hone in on that. And I'm like, but I don't think that you understand. There weren't choices I was making. It wasn't options. I wasn't, there was only one thing to do. That was it. Um, It was my empire. It was all like all those, it was greater than any, it it was, it was the thing. Like there was not called, you were driven. Yeah. I wasn't, I, it wasn't as if I was like, okay, let me weigh my options. Am I more interested? I was like, okay, this is it. This is like, I I'm, I will never ever like forget, like never forgive myself forget anything. Like there was not a conversation. It was just like, you're doing this. We'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. I never anticipated it being what it is today, which is well. Uh, so, sound business decision number two. Uh, <laughs> um, I, uh, with the success that we've seen in Dallas in the program, and the interest of folks and uh, opening, you know, building cafe minimum restaurants and programs around the country, I, I started a new organization called Momentum Advisory Collective to oversee the expansion of the Cafe Momentum model uh, across the country in the first week of March 2020, two weeks before every restaurant in the country shut down. Right. COVID. I mean, it was, you know, hey, we're coming to your city eventually. You know, <laughs> great chef, great business guy, but your timing sucks, bro. Well, I always tell, I always tell people, the next time I tell people, that, so my next idea is like the locusts are coming. Like, you, it's you know what? The next, I want you to call me the next time you have the big idea 
because I'm going to short something a week <laughs> after you start because I know I'm going to hit that square in the teeth. Okay. <laughs> Truth. Truth. So cafe momentum, um, we don't need to skip too, too far by is 100% staffed by kids out of juvenile. And we're talking servers, prep cooks, dishwashers, host, all of it. Yeah. So the, the program itself provides a 12 month curriculum and the curriculum focuses on like kind of four key areas for uh, our organization focuses on four key areas, workforce development, which is obvious in the restaurant, 24 seven case management, mental health services and education. Okay. I want that it's so important that people understand why those things are important. Yes. Tell me about an example of what case management means and has resulted in. Give me just one. Yeah. So when I think of case management, the first word I think of is stabilization. We've worked with over a thousand youth in Dallas and 42% are experiencing significant housing instability. They don't know where they're sleeping at night. I think that people commonly think have a, a perception of what homeless means. But when I tell you that 42% of our youth are, are homeless, it means that they don't have a permanent place to sleep. So they find a different floor to sleep on or a different hallway to sleep. But like, you know, there there's, and, and it's, it's not just the trauma of not knowing where you're resting your head at night. It's the trauma of, not feeling like you're in control of your own destiny. Uh, the trauma of trying to figure out what can you barter with to sleep on this floor? What if you want to understand the vernacular, when someone asks me where I live, I will tell them there's also vernacular in the inner city is where do you stay? Where do you stay? Well, a lot of people think that's really poor English, but actually it's dead nuts. It's, 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 it's spot on. Because you don't live anywhere. It's just where you stay. You don't have an address. Right. You have an area. Yeah, that's that's a hundred percent correct. So for us, case management is creating that stability. It's you know, it's making sure that they're no longer food insecure. It's making sure that they have a consistent place to sleep at night, a, a safe place to sleep at night. It's making sure to help them with things like a government issued ID. It's making sure to help get them a physical at the doctor's office to see you know if there's any medical issue, vision exams so that they can have glasses and see so um, they can read and learn. Yes. It, it's literally, I mean, I, I, at the core, like case management, social, it's stabilization. It's also advocacy, I should say, because what you find with our youth is, and this is a real time example that I wish could say was a one-off and it's not. Um, our youth are embedded in multiple systems that they're not allowed to advocate for themselves in and that don't communicate to one another. So it's routine for a young person to be left with a choice. My probation officer has put me down to check in with him in the, in the office at 2 PM. This has happened in my world. Go ahead. I know this one. You know what? It's real. It, it's it. That's why I said I wish it was a yeah. one-off. You got to go to your probation officer too, because if you and if you don't show up, you, you can violate. get arrested. Yeah, don't back in the clink. Yeah, but right. but if you Where go are you to your supposed probation to be officer, at school, and now you're truant. 
Yeah. And if you're truant. Then that gets reported to your probation officer and you violated probation. Reported to the very probation officer that made the appointment. Made an appointment that made you truant. That made the appointment. And and a lot of times what happens is the pro so case manager will sit along. It's not you got this. You're going to call them. We're going to call them together. We're going to have this conversation. You call the probation officer and you say, hey, listen, you know, uh, Chad's supposed to be in in school at two o'clock. And the probation officer will say, you know what? Uh, I thought I thought he was on the morning schedule. I didn't know he was in the afternoon schedule. That's great. But the young person doesn't know how to advocate. They don't believe the probation officer cares. If they, all of these things happen. And so then it's, here we go. Here goes the cycle again. Well, civil non-threatening conversations are also not typically reality in their world. Right. So asking them, you would think, well, just call your probation officer and explain it. You have no idea how much um, anxiety one of these kids would have being asked to do something like that. They'd probably rather just get in trouble than actually have to make that call because they've never been trained how. I know you've heard this before um, because I hear it all the time. Kids that are up on charges that will say they would rather just spend a year in jail than five years on probation because they think a year in jail, I'm off probation, I'm done, I can move on. I mean, a year in jail, but five years probation is I'm going to spend 10 years in jail because they're going to get me for something. Right. And it requires me to have an interaction with people that I don't trust. I don't trust. Yeah. So, so case management is simply stabilization and advocacy, right? Communication, making sure that everyone that, that is, has some type of significant impact or potential for impact is aligned and, and, and then mental health because of the traumas, um, you That's know, pretty Self-explanatory yep. if you've yep. listened to anything today. Yeah. And, and education, you know, and, and it's, um, I, I think education for me is one of the things that, one of two things that I'm most proud of because it exemplifies at the core who we are as an organization, which is an organization that was built by the very people that we serve. Mm-hmm. Um, we know education is important. We know for a multitude of reasons from the data reasons, but also the lived reasons of our young people. We understand that basic a high school diploma is something that our young people can say i did it myself and no one can ever take it away from me it's also the thing that they say i never thought i would do that now what are the other things i want to do in life that i never thought i could do but but high school wonderful schools in dallas that really really meet our young people where they're at and work so great with them but two things prevented our young people from going number one is it's you can paint it however you want. It's still school. It's still the same institution that it was that made me feel like crap in kindergarten. I ain't going. Number two is I'm so far behind that I, I don't want to get caught up, you know. And then, the, and then the last was public transportation. This school's across town. It's going to take me an hour and a half to get there. And so we worked so hard to get our kids to go to school. It wasn't working. We really wanted them to be in school. Had a young man was supposed to be in school. His case manager and I sat down with him and said, you know, you know, you weren't at school today. Yeah, I was. No, you weren't. Oh, the counselor didn't say, no, no, no. When the counselor didn't see you, it was your case manager that was at school today and didn't see you. Well, you know, I just said, look, man, I said, you know, I love you and I'm going to love you for the rest of my life. But I just, I need you in this moment to teach me two things. Let's start with the first. Do you want to graduate high school? He goes, yeah. 
I said, okay. Then the second question is, why don't you want to go to school? And he was honest with me. I said, teach me. And he was honest with me and told me, I said, okay, I have one more question for you. I said, if we built a school, would you go? He said, yeah. So we built our own school. <laughs> the, the, this dude's name should be over a, a room somewhere. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, but a hundred percent of the youth in the program are in school. Um, but they're in your school, in our school. Yeah. And some of them are in, 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 in other schools, but you, you know, what, what we've found was it, it, it again, goes back to our, our young people know what they need and they know how they need it. It's our job to listen and act, you know? So we focus on those, those four things in the restaurant itself to what you, you kind of mentioned earlier. And we talked about a little bit is we do require them to work in every station in the restaurant. So they'll spend time washing dishes. They'll spend time bussing tables. They'll spend time working on a couple of the lines in the kitchen. They'll spend time hosting. They'll spend time serving. And we do that for a couple of reasons. Number one is that they're learning new life skills and social skills. And, and, and they're getting to apply them to the different environment that each of those stations presents. My, my favorite example was always like learning to disagree appropriately. And the way you disagree appropriately in the kitchen with a, with a fellow cook while you're trying to get food out for 15 tables is different than the way you disagree appropriately with a customer that sat down 10 minutes ago, ordered three minutes ago, and is already complaining that they've waited 45 minutes for their food and want to speak to the manager. Our jails today are full of people who did not know how to handle a disagreement. Yes. You think about, you think about that for a second, about how most assault in our country is by someone that the assaulted knows. Yes. Um, it's very little crime, uh, especially violent crime, perpetrated on people who don't know the perpetrator. It's yeah. very rare. It's another one of those misnomers. It's another one of those things. Um, the boogeyman out to get it, you. Yeah. It's, it's 100%. Yeah. And so the point is, I'm sitting here hearing you, and I can't think of, of a better lesson to learn than how to disagree yeah, appropriately. appropriately. That's a fantastic lesson that for, adults need to learn <laughs> that everybody needs to learn, but especially at risk youth. Yes. It's a beautiful example. And yes. you're right. Um, some jerk that sits down at, at a table and starts griping about something they have no reason to gripe at. Everybody's first reaction is to want to punch them in the nose. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, it's mine. I mean, but. I've learned the appropriate reaction to that stimulus and have understood that punching the nose is not appropriate reaction. And as a result, don't go to jail or end up in a lawsuit. Uh That is a really interesting thing that you're talking about is so do they come to you and say, this jerk's yelling at me at the table. How do I handle it? How, how How do you teach that? Um, through modeled behavior, through positive reinforcement, through talking through a situation. I mean, it's you never model those like, situations out. Oh yeah. Yeah. When well, we'll talk about, um, you like role playing, we'll do some role playing. We do, we do a lot of like kind of training and, and we'll actually, it's fun because we'll do role playing with interns, right? So we'll have interns sitting at a table and another one will be serving them. Talk about like, you know, don't be polite or don't be whatever. And it's fun, but but what I've found most times than not is if a person's kind of being a jerk and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for this, that the kids feel it's a safe place and they're going to the manager and saying, this person's not being 
Right. And a manager will walk over and, and have a conversation with I the young person. That. If you're ever doing role playing and you need the guy to be the really good jerk, I I tended bar and waited tables <laughs> for five years to get through college. Man, I could play that role great. I just could remember one of thirty different times I wanted to kill somebody that was in one of the restaurants I was working in, and I could just be that person and help train your people. I could be one of the greatest jerks ever. <laughs> I, I got to tell you one funny story: is we had a guy come in the restaurant and. From literally the moment that he walked in, he was absolutely unhappy, and there was nothing that was going to change his unhappiness because we didn't serve liquor. That's what he was unhappy about. Oh, boy. It ruined his entire night. So he was barking at the kids. He was barking at the – and I was standing – at the manager. I was standing in the middle of the restaurant, and he came over to me, and we served beer and wine. He came over to me, and he said, excuse me. Do I have to do something to get my friends want beverages? And he's going on and I said, I'm absolutely, you know, happy to to take care of you. Uh, I said, I understand that there's been some issue and stuff this evening. And he goes, who said that? And I said, um, well, he goes, was it that lady over there? And I said, well, I, I just looked at him. I said, it's very clear to everyone in this restaurant that you're not impressed with anything that's going on here. Tonight. <laughs> so what I'm going included to, our other patrons. Yes. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is help to get you through this night in, a, in, in the best way I possibly can. So let me get through that. This man leaves the restaurant and he goes on Facebook and he gives us a one star review and says horrible food, horrible service, Horrible management, horrible parking, horrible on and on and on. And about six months later, somebody commented on his review and said, I don't understand. They have complimentary valet parking. parking Parking. like all you have to do is open the car door and step out that's it because one of the things a restaurant business will teach you is there are people in this world that no matter what you do you'll never make them happy never make them happy and and you know what that's a really good lesson it's a a great lesson to learn it's a great lesson to learn the second thing that we that they're learning in the restaurant is to, to to embrace and take pride in their strengths and a strength is something that our young people have used to survive, to get by, to get through day to day. But yet they, the hustle, it's the hustle. But then they wind up in a system that says you're bad for doing that. And so they look at it holistically. It's like, well, I guess that's not, you know, I guess being a good sales, but whatever is not a, not a great strength. And we want them to take pride in it and understand that it's, it's, it, it's an asset. It's not a, you know, it, it's not a deficit. And I still think to this day, like the greatest example, and it happens over and over again. But the first time I saw it happen was we had a young man who we ran a special on a Saturday night and said, whoever sells the most specials gets a free entree. We do it all the time. This young man sold us out of every single special we had in the first 45 minutes we were open. (laughs) And he wasn't even a waiter. He was a busser. And he realized that I'm the first point of contact at the table because I'm pouring water. Oh, and no. so he he's deployed. poured water saying, Hey, have you heard about our special? special yeah. <laughs> and then says, so just let the server, just let the server know. I told you to order the special. And 45 minutes later, he was eating a steak. <laughs> I love it. I, it's, That's it's, the hustle. And I always tell people because there's such a, there's such a, 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 a misperception that we are a, 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 a training facility for restaurant workers 
And that's not what no, we're doing. No, you're using the restaurant to train these kids for life. Life. And that that skill, that is a skill that that young man can take with him to start his own lumber company, to open a barbershop, to sell cars, be a lawyer, be sell cars. Like, it doesn't matter. It's an invaluable skill. And to see him embracing it and and being proud of it is is important. And the third thing I think that that they're learning in the restaurant and with the organization as a whole is what it means to to be a part of a team. And, you know, I think when we think of team and team player, we think of like the kind of the clinical sports definition of, you know, I'm, I'm one of 11 on offense or I'm one of five on the court or, you know, and, and I have to, and you, you do learn in the restaurant, right? Like as a dishwasher, you learn pretty quickly that if you don't do your job, you literally f- set up everyone in the restaurant to fail. Like you, everyone, everyone. That's, That's all the way through a restaurant. Oh yeah. All the way through the chaos, that the is chaos the kitchen. But what our interns are learning as well is what it, means to be a part of a team that says we're going to show up and do our best to put you in position to be yours, which is why beyond the restaurant, we have the 24 seven case management, the mental health services and the education. So now, um, cafe momentum is in Pittsburgh. We opened in Pittsburgh Nashville. earlier this year. Um, we're doing a lot of exploration and building in, in, in Nashville fundraising. And then we're doing some exploration and fundraising in Atlanta, Denver, and Houston. And your goal is to have how many of these things? Oh, as many as it takes. I mean, I think we kind of audaciously at the beginning said we wanted to open up 30 of them in the next 10 years. But if I'm if I'm going to be completely honest with anyone, man, I would love to open five and then like be worked out of a job. I would love what we've done in Dallas um, truly is shown what a new model for juvenile justice can and should look like in this country. And I would love nothing more than for the model to be adopted and, and, and I be out of a job. I'll just go back to washing dishes. What, um, what, what do you need? Um, me personally, or <laughs> I well, a little sleep. I mean, um, <laughs> here's the thing. We always talk about what we're going to do to break the cycle. What we're going to do, break it. Yeah. Well, here it is. You, you mentor, you, yeah. you, you case, you, you cover all of that. Um, yeah. And, and it's an unbelievable model and we're an army of normal folks. And you're just a guy from a blue collar, hardworking family who, Went to two years of college, got his associates in culinary, and found a place and a need, and you match your skill with your passion, and you're changing kids' lives, and you're also opening up ideas about how to maybe break into the cycle that leads to our adult prison systems. I think it's beautiful, and I think our listeners are going to be beautiful, and I think people will be maybe passionate about what you're doing. What do you need? You know, um, what do you need to make it go? Yeah, more, bigger? I, I think um, so we get a lot of inquiry and, you know, people saying, are you hiring? How can I get involved? How can I do this in my 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 city, my town? How? And I. I, I just kind of had this epiphany recently of like, you know, I feel like people think I walked into that 
juvenile detention facility with a business plan. No, you walked in there to make ice cream. Yeah. Something as simple as that. So when I, when I think about what I need, I need people to show up. Yeah. I mean, anybody that's listening to this can contact their local jewel department and say, hey, I want to volunteer. How do they contact you to find out how it works? <laughs> it, actually, the easiest way to do it is to go to the Momentum Advisory Collective website, which is MomentumAdvisory.co. Um, MomentumAdvisory.co. Uh-huh. And uh, on that website is an inquiry form. Perfect. And that's the easiest way to do it. All right. Sign us off with this. Give me your favorite story of a kid. That is the most loaded question. <laughs> I know. I hate the question to me because I've got like a thousand. Let me say it a different way. Give me one of your favorite stories of what Cafe Momentum has done for a kid who is now an adult. Uh, so one of my, you know, again, we could spend 17 hours and I wouldn't cover half of them. I right? get it. There's uh, a story one, under every helmet. One that sticks out to me because I don't think it was just me. It's the community. It's the village as a whole. Right. Um, so we had a young lady who was born as English as a second language. And she um, grew up being kind of made fun of and being very self-conscious of the fact that English was a second language to her. It was a deficit to her. She showed up at Cafe Momentum, and her first day of work, she told her case manager, I'm here to make money, not friends. Hmm. And She'd been hardened. Yes. And she sat on stage one day uh, at a conference, you know, speaking, and she talked, she was talking about that, and she talked about how at Cafe Momentum, she learned from people that cared more about her and believed in her more than sometimes even her own family did. And, um, and, and, and I saw her smile. It took me three or four months to get her to smile at me. Like, you know, I mean, she's, and so she finished the program and she got and it's single mom, an incredible mom. Her son is her life. And she is now a concierge at children's hospital in Dallas. And they hired her because she's bilingual. It was her strength. So she turned the most difficult part of what embarrassed her, a deficit, into a strength. Into a strength. And learned how to gather that up through her work at Cafe Momentum. And a month ago, her supervisor emailed us and said, I just wanted to let you know she had been given the award of employee. Every month they pick an employee at Children's Hospital that best exhibits and displays the values of the organization, and she had won that award. And let's remember, this is a kid who is in juvenile detention Yes, who people have actually said would get in a kitchen and stab another person. Who people would have crossed the street if they saw her coming. But that's the beauty of Cafe Momentum is chasing lives, bro. I, it, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to be a part of it. I'm incredibly grateful to have spent this time with you and shared your story. Chad, one more time, if people want to donate get involved, find out more, talk to you about maybe starting a cafe momentum in their neighborhood. They go to, I highly encourage people to go to both cafe momentum.org. You okay. can read about the story of cafe momentum and cafe momentum, in Dallas, Nashville, Pittsburgh, what we're up to. Um, but also if you want to look at more of like the national work that we're doing, um, because, you know, we built momentum advisory collective, not just to, to build programs, but to build conversation. 
Um, and that's at and that's momentumadvisory.co. Chad Hauser, a guy who grew up in Dallas with a grandfather in a in a diverse neighborhood and a secretary and a and a dad who sold office some kind of yeah, products. office supplies <laughs> and was a weekend cop, just a blue collar guy, uh, a good average middle income family who grew to love food through the community that his family shared over it, made it a profession, reached the height of that profession, both from uh, respect from his abilities as a chef, but also from actually running the business that is a restaurant, switched his life around and started sharing all that experience with the most at-risk kids in Dallas and in doing so is changing lives. Um, I cannot think of a more worthy person to be considered just a member of an army of normal folks, seeing a place in need, employing your discipline, your passion, and changing lives. And Chad, it has been my honor to meet you. Um, I'm, uh, it's my honor, and, and, and I'm very grateful. And it just means the world to, to all of us and our youth you know, to go from a position of being told they can't, they won't, um, to, to being here with you today and, and being able to go to the restaurant tonight. And they're going to ask me about the podcast. And um, one of the questions will eventually be, I thought it was pretty cool, huh? Yeah. Probably wants to meet me, huh? Yeah. All right, cool. That's, you know, that, that's so empowering to them. So thank you very much. One day, maybe you'll let me be the guy that role plays and I'll meet them and they'll all hate me. You name the day. We will, we will, we, we have family meal every day at three o'clock. Sounds great. Chad, thank you, my friend. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us this week. If Chad or another guest has inspired you in general or better yet to take action by helping start a cafe momentum in your city by donating to them or something else entirely, please let me know. I'd love to hear about it. You can write me anytime at bill at normalfolks.us or now you can call us at 901-352-1366. I promise you, we will respond. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and on social, subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it. Become a premium member at normalfolks.us. All these things that will help us grow an army of normal folks. Thanks to our producer, Iron Light Labs. I'm Bill Courtney. I'll see you next week. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.